You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is Erotic 90s. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. Erotic 80s began with a prologue. Before we could talk about that decade, I felt we had to understand something about the history of sex on film leading up to the 80s which meant talking about the transition from the old production code to the MPAA rating system and the brief heyday of the X rating, which was for a while applied to Hollywood and international art films with sexual themes and content, as well as hardcore porn films that played in movie theaters. Talking about censorship and pornography led us to also talk about the feminist response to sex in popular culture. These were all threads that would carry throughout the season. Erotic 90s, too, begins with a prologue, following a thread through three concentric circles. Hollywood film censorship, which entered a new era in 1990, how the effort to draw a line in the sand between commercial art and pornography backfired, and how sexual politics of the dawn of the 90s played into the overall political landscape in ways that are relevant to the movies we'll be discussing this season. In 1990, the MPAA replaced the X rating with a new rating called NC-17. And they did this partially to differentiate Hollywood movies with sexual content from hardcore porn. But hardcore porn had evolved far away from the Deep Throat era and was now deep in the home video era. There was no multiplex traffic for Long Dong Silver, who became a household name anyway, when Anita Hill testified that Clarence Thomas had tried to engage her in a discussion of that well-endowed porn star's oeuvre while they were at work. Hill's allegations of sexual harassment against Supreme Court nominee Thomas, the televised hearings in which she described the hostile work environment he had created, and the skewering Hill subsequently faced from senators, including Joe Biden, would, by the end of the decade, feel like a cataclysm that had defined much of what the 90s were all about. 
you had a public discussion about pornography in a supposedly hallowed chamber of government, which transformed a taboo subject into fodder for jokes on primetime TV and arguably turned the whole world into a hostile environment for people who didn't want to be exposed to porn. And you had a woman reluctantly coming forward to tell her truth about a powerful man, only to be essentially punished for it while he was rewarded with a seat at one of the most powerful tables in the country. And in the aftermath, women who had believed Anita Hill and or who had faced something similar in their own lives as women trying to pursue careers in workplaces dominated by men were faced with a cultural tide that was overwhelmingly against them. That tide brought in a new wave of female voices who were pro-porn, pro-female sexual pleasure, and in some cases, whether they were reactionaries or sincere, expressed skepticism that sexual harassment, not to mention its cousin in 90s buzzwords, date rape, were even really a problem at all. It's important to remember that as the 90s begin, there are a number of opposing cultural forces clashing together. The fall of communism in Eastern Europe and the thawing of the Cold War convinced some that we had reached the quote-unquote end of history, which meant that American-style freedom, meaning capitalism first, democracy second, had won out over fascism and authoritarianism. As we now know, 1989 was hardly the end of fascism or authoritarianism. And history does not end. It's cyclical, sometimes scarily so. Still, in the moment, the early 90s seemed in some ways like a moment of political liberalism. In other ways, it didn't at all. The AIDS epidemic had escalated since we last talked about it in the context of the mid-80s and was now a topic of mainstream conversation. It became a convenient excuse for homophobia, racism, and especially after Magic Johnson announced his HIV diagnosis in 1991, an argument for a return to supposedly old-fashioned sexual and marital values. Maybe the genie of the sexual revolution couldn't be put back in the bottle, but gays could be shamed, women could be encouraged to leave the workforce and return to the kitchen, and sexual expression in pop music and in movies could be protested and even legislated out of the supposedly free market. As lefty reporter Robert Shear wrote in Playboy in 1990, as the rest of the world lunges to embrace our vision of freedom for consenting adults, buy what you want when you want it, America's homegrown censors seem more virulent than ever. Shear was writing in the middle of a historic controversy around Luther Campbell and his rap group Two Live Crew, whose album Nasty As They Wanna Be was declared obscene by a Florida judge that June, making it the first pop album to gain that distinction. Cher pointed out that the right-wing Republicans in Florida restraining Campbell's ability to practice free market capitalism were going against what was supposedly 
the root of their political party. He noted that when he was a kid, there was a furor over whether or not Elvis's wriggling pelvis should be seen on TV. Quote, Today, if the censors have their way, it's rap music and X-rated videos that are taboo. Same difference. In other words, the real issue here was racism. Two Live Crew appealed to white kids, particularly white girls, who went to their concerts and, in the worst nightmares of these Florida Republicans, but also Tipper Gore, could have their bodies sullied by the touch of a black man. This is the same shit that Hedda Hopper was hopping mad about in the 1950s. The more things change. A more accurate title for this season may be Backlash 90s. Though there seemed to be an enormous amount of sex in the culture in the 1990s, in movies, TV, music, the burgeoning internet, and the news, throughout the decade, there was a creeping conservatism, which seized on a reasonable anxiety over AIDS, then turned into moralistic fear-mongering, and then evolved into Newt Gingrich and the Clinton impeachment, and then the 2000 election. The forces of anti-feminist backlash, which Susan Faludi wrote about in her 1991 book, Backlash, which was mostly about things that happened in the 80s and which we talked about a lot in erotic 80s, were not subversive undercurrents by the time Bill Clinton was elected president in 1992. They were the meat of the culture. This season will cover all of this. Plus, Madonna, Julia Roberts, Sharon Stone, Drew Barrymore, Kevin Spacey as the Devil, The Long Tale of Fatal Attraction, Lolita, The Long Island Lolita, James Spader, Tom Cruise, Anne Heche, David Lynch, and much, much more. Where Erotic 80s devoted one episode to each year, Erotic 90s can't be contained in that format. It's going to take 12 episodes just to get to the end of 1993. So join us, won't you, for the prologue to Erotic 90s. Flashback to Erotic 80s. For the first few years after it was established in 1968, the X rating did what it was intended to do. It designated which films should be seen by adults only. In 1969, when the X-rated Midnight Cowboy became a major box office hit and won Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenwriting Oscars, it looked like the X was a success. And Last Tango in Paris, released in 1973, seemed to confirm that. But the climate that made Last Tango a sensation also made Deep Throat a must-see and the mainstreaming of hardcore pornography ultimately delegitimized the X rating as a marker for more respectable or artistically-minded movies that pushed the limits of sex and violence. After Deep Throat, there were hardcore movies that attempted a level of artistry and or narrative, such as Behind the Green Door or The Devil in Miss Jones. But even amongst those that didn't, it became commonplace for adult films to use the X rating in their advertising, 
and eventually triple X, which wasn't even a real rating, even though most of these films had not even been submitted to the MPAA for evaluation. As a seething Jack Valenti, architect and salesman of the MPAA rating system, put it, the X was absconded by nasty, dirty, filthy pictures. Apparently not understanding the difference between an MPAA-bestowed X and a self-applied triple X, newspapers and television stations and networks began to ban advertising for X-rated films, and theater chains nationwide refused to book them. This, along with the rise of VHS, effectively moved the adult industry to the badlands of the theatrical landscape. But it also killed all commercial prospects for Hollywood movies rated X. The marginalization of adult films extended to the mainstream publication where you'd think they would find the most attention. In Erotic 80s, we talked about how Playboy magazine's film critic Bruce Williamson vowed to stop reviewing hardcore titles in his column unless they really deserved it. By 1989, apparently none did. In the April 1989 issue, Williamson made space for a pan of Heathers, which he gave a single set of bunny ears out of a possible four. But the only mention of any kind of erotica was a plug for a video called Playboy's Playmate Playoffs. Williamson did note in his column that Philip Kaufman's the unbearable lightness of being, was his choice for the sexiest film of the previous year. He wasn't alone. Roger Ebert called it, quote, the most erotic serious film since last tango in Paris. Playboy is a useful barometer of the most mainstream, heteronormative, and generally masculine ideas about sexuality in a given moment. And in this issue, their film critics seem to be aligned with the viewpoint that would soon drive an attempt to reform the rating system. Unbearable lightness of being had achieved its lauded eroticism without having any trouble getting an R rating. If this was what a serious filmmaker could do with ratings board handcuffs on, what could happen if such an artist could be given a little more leeway and still compete in the mainstream marketplace. It made a lot of people wonder if it was time to revive the spirit of Last Tango nearly 20 years later, giving a boost to serious films about sex by re-legitimizing Hollywood's most restrictive rating. It seemed clear that there was a space for artistic films about sex, especially since hardcore porn had drifted into a ghetto of its own, unworthy of consideration alongside even one bunny product released by Hollywood Studios. Virtually every Hollywood film that had attempted challenging eroticism since Last Tango that had been submitted to the MPAA and rated X was ultimately trimmed in order to get an R rating. The non-pornographic films that were released with an X rating between 1973 and 1989 were largely art films that may have benefited commercially from the idea that they were taboo, such as Pasolini's Arabian Nights, 
Polyester and Female Trouble by John Waters, Pedro Almodovar's Matador. There was a kind of cachet associated with the X rating if you were John Waters, or for an art sex film like In the Realm of the Senses, or for a winking exploitation film like The Evil Dead. But studios couldn't balance their books on cachet, and so, as we documented in Erotic 80s, they played the MPAA's game in order to get R's for films like Crimes of Passion. Things began to change at the end of the decade, as it became apparent that there was a disconnect between what the booming international art house cinema scene deemed risque but hardly obscene, and what the MPAA deemed worthy of an X rating. After the break, the MPAA invents a new rating, and in pretty much every conceivable way, fumbles its rollout. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the late 80s, Harvey Weinstein perfected the art of capitalizing on trumped-up battles with the MPAA. In 1990, when his company Miramax decided to release Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, unrated rather than accept an X rating, the press took up Weinstein's cause for him. Greenaway's was clearly an art film one which had not faced censorship difficulties in Greenaway's native England, which could be more repressive than the U.S. It had also been a huge art house hit there and elsewhere in Europe. Filmmakers and distributors were happy to go along with the MPAA as long as it was good for business. But if their ratings decisions were choking off potential revenue streams, that was another matter pressure on the MPAA to sort out a rating for adult-themed films to allow them to compete at the U.S. box office intensified after the Cannes Film Festival in 1990, where David Lynch's Wild at Heart won the Palme d'Or. Lynch acknowledged that he and distributor Goldwyn Pictures expected to have to make cuts to the version of the movie that won the top prize at the most prestigious film festival in the world in order to get the R rating that would allow for a wide release in the US. Goldwyn's Tom Rothman confirmed that they would force Lynch to make cuts if they had to, saying, it's too big a movie, too important a movie to go out with an X. The MPAA's Valenti continued to insist that his system was working, despite the fact that, as Ann Thompson wrote in the LA Weekly, it was not designed to cause filmmakers to cut their movies to fit into an arbitrary category. On the contrary, Valenti had claimed in 1968 that the X would give filmmakers more freedom to explore adults-only content, 
but after the X rating was appropriated by the porn industry, the studios felt they couldn't release an X-rated film themselves and still make the argument that sexually provocative Hollywood movies were not equivalent to porn. This had created a scenario in which the only commercially viable option was to submit to censorship for U.S. theatrical with the understanding that the versions of movies available and even lauded elsewhere in the world could only be seen by American consumers on video. Wild at Heart got its R pretty easily in the end. Lynch didn't even have to make cuts, although he did have to use a digital effect to cloud a decapitation scene. When the movie was released in the States that summer, it got largely negative reviews and was a disappointment at the box office. In one of the more positive pieces, Playboy's Bruce Williamson declared that Wild at Heart, quote, though rated R is patently lewder and more violent than much of the competition labeled X, which may mean that being a winner at Cannes is especially helpful. In Erotic 80s, we talked about how huckster distributors like Weinstein would use publicity surrounding an X rating to their advantage while always intending to deliver a film that offended almost no one. When Wild at Heart, a film which actually delivered extremes of both sex and violence, failed to perform at the box office, it proved that in the 90s, an old 80s truism still held. At the end of the day, the mass audience didn't really want to be challenged that much. Sensing that his moment was nigh, right after Wild at Heart won at Cannes, Weinstein filed a lawsuit against the MPAA to challenge the X rating they had given Pedro Almodovar's film, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Weinstein hired famed civil rights lawyer William Kunstler, who argued that the MPAA's decisions were, quote, arbitrary, capricious, and unreasonable and unfairly punished international and independent filmmakers while giving Hollywood studios more leeway. Kunstler pointed to scenes from R-rated films such as The Postman Always Rings Twice, Fatal Attraction, and Nine and a Half Weeks to make the case that Almodovar's film had been unjustly stigmatized. The lawsuit was filed days before Miramax planned to expand Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down's release from five screens to 80. Playboy, always eager to weigh in on the issue of censorship, used the lawsuit as an opportunity to argue for the total abolishment of the rating system. To quote an unsigned editorial, we don't need a rating system for films, certainly not one that treats us all like children. And we question parents who are willing to base their judgment on a simple-minded letter rating awarded by a faceless committee. When the judge ruled a month later, he threw out Miramax's complaint. Under the First Amendment, the courts couldn't tell the ratings board what to do, and the judge didn't believe Miramax really wanted him to. There are questions of the good faith of the petitioners in instituting this proceeding, the judge wrote which leads to the inference that this proceeding may be just publicity. 
They had won this round, but nothing scared the MPAA like lawsuits that could be appealed to the Supreme Court and lead to government censorship. So a few months later, the MPAA replaced the X rating with a new rating called NC-17, which somewhat clumsily indicated that no children under the age of 17 would be admitted to these movies, even with a parent in tow. The idea behind the change, according to the LA Times, was to clear the way for strong adult-themed films to be released and marketed in theaters without the taint of pornography now associated with an X rating. We are going back to the original intent of the rating system, Valenti said. We have an adults-only category. It takes us back to the days, hopefully, of Midnight Cowboy, Last Tango in Paris, and A Clockwork Orange. It felt like real change might be afoot when the New York Times which had refused to accept ads for X-rated films, announced that it would now accept advertising in, quote, acceptable taste for any MPAA-rated film, including NC-17s. The LA Times revised their own policy, agreeing to run the ads as long as they were assured the films in question contain no scenes of hardcore pornography. Most of the TV networks agreed that they would accept ads too, but only to be run late at night, after prime time. The first film selected as a trial balloon for NC-17 was Henry and June, Kaufman's follow-up to The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Dramatizing the passionate relationship between Henry Miller, his wife June, and Anais Nin in 1930s Paris, the movie contained a lot of clothed, heavy breathing and a little bit of tasteful nudity. Kaufman would later say that he had assumed Henry and June would easily obtain the same rating as Unbearable Lightness of Being. He was not trying to make a more explicit film and didn't think he had. The MPAA said Henry and June was disqualified from an R rating because of, quote, five scenes in the film showing lesbian encounters and one shot of an erotic Japanese postcard portraying a woman and an octopus in a compromising position. Kaufman joked that the postcard could only be considered sexually exciting by a 16-year-old octopus whose ID wasn't checked on the way into the theater. Given its hype as the first film with the NC-17 rating, film critics seemed disappointed that Henry and June wasn't pornier. After all, most had thought that Kaufman's R-rated previous film was an erotic triumph. People who were expecting his NC-17-rated follow-up to be even hotter were disappointed. Kaufman has achieved the near impossible by depicting a considerable number of intricate love scenes without even a glimpse of frontal nudity, Variety complained. In time, Richard Corliss reported feeling cheated because he didn't feel like co-star Uma Thurman was naked enough. Quote, There's something wrong with a sexual film when it's erotic ideal, the statuesque Thurman, is kept mostly under wraps. Ironically and fatally, 
Henry and June lacks redeeming prurient interest. Kaufman can feel gratified that his film will be shown as he made it, but it never should have been an X, even by the ratings board standards. What seems clear is that the ratings board had changed its ratings, but hadn't really revised its standards. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation protested the ratings in an open letter to the MPAA, asking, is there no room under the current rating system for realistic portrayals of physical intimacy between members of the same sex without the stigma of pornography? Right out of the gate, Henry and June made it clear that the MPAA felt films depicting queer, commodified, or adulterous sex should almost always be judged more harshly than those depicting one man in Congress with his monogamous female partner. Based on those standards, it makes sense why Henry and June received an NC-17, even though the actual sex shown in the film is far from explicit. This is a movie about a married woman on a journey of sexual self-discovery, who is awakened both erotically and creatively by inserting herself into someone else's marriage. There's a scene in which Kevin Spacey, yes, he's in this movie, and yes, he's sleazy in it, says that Henry Miller writes about fucking, and Miller protests that no, he writes about self-realization, and Spacey says, no, it's about fucking. That's sort of the essence of the MPAA's judgment. It saw Henry and June as a movie about fucking, and it believed movies about fucking should be rated more harshly than movies about anything else. This was also a movie about how the erotic can inspire the creative, which was dangerous given that film censorship began in the 1920s as a way of proving to Hollywood's critics that people who make movies were not all perverts. Of course, that was a belief still deeply held by some who would never see Henry and June. After the U.S. Catholic bishops and the National Council of Churches issued a joint statement calling the switch from X to NC-17 arrogant and ill-advised, a Christian talk radio station organized protests outside theaters showing Henry and June in Southern California. One protester carried a sign that read, NC-17 encourages date rape. All of the protesters the LA Times spoke to acknowledged that they hadn't seen the movie. But Cindy Avakian, the manager of the radio station that promoted the protest, said that didn't matter. In a confusingly worded statement, she said, X-rated films mean NC-17 and X-rated films do not belong in the malls. The industry had supported the transition from X to NC-17 because they thought it would help them sell more movie tickets. Maybe in the long run, it could have, if it had been given anything like a fair chance. A week into the release of the first NC-17 movie, Martin Grove used his Hollywood Reporter column to argue that the rating was already a failure at the box office. Henry and June's numbers were equivalent, Grove wrote, to the way a good art film or specialized appeal film would have played with an R rating or no rating at all. 
clearly June wasn't suddenly attracting mainstream moviegoers, the NC-17 rating and the broader marketing it made possible didn't really do much for June's box office performance. The market for candid adult product is limited and unlikely to expand no matter what Hollywood calls the rating it gives such films. One problem was that the MPAA could not qualitatively explain what made an NC-17 film different from an X-rated film. Valenti would later explain that his lawyers told him the MPAA couldn't make a distinction between films for adults and adult films because comparing one film to another would open the ratings board up to lawsuits. One rating becomes the bad adult film, off limits, and the other becomes the good adult film, Valenti said. Now, because you're dealing subjectively with judging these films, you will undoubtedly have somebody get an NC-17 rating who will sue you for discrimination. Creating the NC-17 was a big deal for the MPAA, and Jack Valenti knew it wouldn't work if anyone associated the new rating with pornography. That problem loomed when some hardcore filmmakers, such as the distributor of Blonde Emmanuel in 3D, began submitting their movies to the MPAA so they could take advantage of the legitimacy conferred by an NC-17 to try to advertise and distribute more widely. Jack Valenti said he wasn't worried about this happening more than a few times because, quote, the hardcore porn movie business is virtually extinct. Was it? Theatrical porn was all but extinct by the mid-80s. But video, which had come to dominate the adult entertainment market by 1982, had only continued to grow. Companies that had been making a million dollars a year making porn films were soon making five times that much on video. Indeed, the porn industry figured out how to make home video a cash cow years before the mainstream video rental industry peaked. Valenti was right to say in 1990 that patrons had virtually no chance of walking in on a porn movie unawares in a regular movie theater. These theaters had stopped showing X-rated movies of any kind. And if a porn movie did go through the process of paying the MPAA to get an NC-17 rating, it's unlikely they'd be able to get on a screen available to the majority of Americans. Most theater chains wouldn't accidentally book a hardcore film thinking it was an art film because they rarely did business with anyone but the major distributors anyway. But the new rating did pose a problem for video rental stores, especially major chains which had policies in place to ensure that there would be no X-rated content on their shelves. If it's possible for something like Debbie Does Dallas to get an NC-17, then something is wrong, declared Peter Margot, executive vice president of a 30-store chain called Palmer Video. Margot added, there's an obvious difference between a serious, mature movie and a porn movie. This NC-17 doesn't make that distinction. So we still may have a problem, new rating or not. 
initially, Blockbuster said they would decide on a case-by-case basis on whether to stock films. In practice, they would demand edited, R-rated versions of any movie that was theatrically released as an NC-17. But for many independent video stores around the country, stocking adult films, rated or otherwise, was a no-brainer. Remember in erotic 80s when filmmakers like Adrian Lyne found whole new revenue streams on video for unrated versions of their sexy dramas, which appealed to viewers who were too embarrassed or otherwise unable to enjoy this kind of content in movie theaters? By the early 90s, most people in the U.S. didn't need to rent an art movie to see sex on their TVs. After the break, Porn at Home, circa 1990. If you've seen the movie Boogie Nights, you probably have a vague sense of what happened to pornography when video replaced film in the early 80s. Movies could now be made much faster and more cheaply. They could also be consumed in greater quantities. By the end of the 80s, most cities had independent video stores that had an adult section. At my local independent video store, 2020 on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City, the adult section was cordoned off from the rest of the store with a black curtain, with a sign on the curtain saying no one under 18 was permitted to enter. The mystique of that curtain when I was 11 years old in 1991. 2020 had a cult section which contained unrated or X-rated films that were not porn, like John Waters movies, which they kept just outside the adult section. For many years, I was too afraid to cross through that curtain, partially because I was worried that I would be caught, ejected from the store, and maybe even banned for life, which would have been disastrous for me since I spent most weekends alone at home watching rented movies, and partially because I was not ready to see what was back there. But browsing the cult section, I would catch glimpses. Ten years later, I worked at a video store called Gramophone on Polk Street in San Francisco. This was just before high-speed internet became totally commonplace in homes, which meant it was the peak of rental porn culture. Gramophone had an entire adult room, which was now part of my job to stock, and which consisted of about half straight and half gay porn, all of the newest stuff, as well as a lot of 70s classics on VHS. Most of our male regulars would rent both porn and mainstream movies, coming back for new titles of each type almost every night. A lot of straight couples would do the same. The hardcore movies made in the 70s that showed in movie theaters were different from the video titles behind that black curtain in the 90s, in part because watching a movie in a public movie theater is different from watching it in the privacy of your home with a remote control in your hand. When porn was shot on and projected on film, there was more emphasis on narrative and artistry in part because filmmakers wanted to create imagery that would imprint on the viewer's fantasies so that they could 
use the film as inspiration after they got home, by themselves or with a partner. Filmmakers believed they needed high concepts and actual characters to hold the ticket buyer's interest between the sex scenes. But video consumers could, and did, fast forward through anything they were bored by and go straight to their preferred sexual imagery. This shifted the power balance in the industry, away from filmmakers with vision and towards stars who could catch a viewer's attention through the fast-forward blur. In straight porn, the stars were women with endless stamina who loved the camera and were loved by it back. This meant, by the late 80s, the gender politics of pornography were different than they had been back when Linda Lovelace was making Deep Throat in the early 70s. But people who opposed pornography didn't understand or care about this evolution. Porn had largely moved out of the public space and into private homes, and yet there was still enough complaint over the very existence of the adult industry from Reagan voters that the administration threw some money at an effort to show they were doing something to stop it. The Meese Commission, named for Reagan's second-term attorney general, Edwin Meese, was an underfunded and shoddily staffed play at compiling evidence that the porn industry was a mafia front and an empirically proven instigator of violence against women. The commission included lawyers, psychologists, and members of the clergy, but no investigators by trade. So a bunch of anti-porn FBI agents volunteered to work for the commission for free. Another volunteer participant was Andrea Dworkin, one of the founders of the activist group Women Against Pornography back in the 70s. Part of her testimony read, quote, in this country where I live as a citizen, real rapes are on film and being sold in the marketplace and the major motif of pornography as a form of entertainment is that women are raped and violated and humiliated until we discover that we like it. And at that point, we ask for more. From the beginning of Women Against Pornography, they had the same goals as right-wing conservatives. But when Dworkin actually collaborated with the Reagan administration, on one of their least popular gambits, it was a bad look for her generation and brand of feminism. A lot of people didn't want either feminists or Reaganites telling them how to live their sexual lives. Meanwhile, the video store adult section allowed anyone who entered to consume exactly what they wanted to, in the privacy of their own homes, with little judgment or stigma, and without having to go to a red light district or do anything illegal. The audience for mainstream pornography was bigger and more diverse than ever. According to Adult Video News, the variety of the industry, in 1990, 47% of adult rental tape decisions were made by women. You would think, since more people were voluntarily consuming hardcore than ever before, commonly accepted standards of decency would have shifted, 
and the movie ratings board would adjust their standards for the depiction of sex in Hollywood films accordingly. But they did not. And after Henry and June, no studio released an NC-17 film for years. Instead, they played the game to get an R, just as they had done when the rating was called X, and they still took advantage of the profit loophole of releasing unrated or NC-17 versions of the same film on home video. Within a year of its creation, NC-17 was widely considered to be a joke, if not a scheme for the studios to restrain the trade of their independent competitors. Adult film legend Howard Zeem wrote a letter to the editor of the LA Times protesting the double standard he experienced as the producer of the sexploitation sci-fi parody series Flesh Gordon. Released in 1974, the first Flesh Gordon was rated R. In making a sequel a decade and a half later, Zeem said he carefully calibrated the adult content using the model of the first film to ensure an R rating. But the MPAA gave Flesh Gordon 2, also known as Flesh Gordon Meets the Cosmic Cheerleaders, an NC-17, and gave the filmmakers the impression that an appeal would be useless because, quote, the theme of the picture was sex from beginning to end, and that made it NC-17. Flesh Gordon 2, wrote Zeem, has its share of crazy, sex-starved monsters, erotically-shaped rocket ships, topless men and women, but has no frontal nudity, erotic sex scenes, or excessive foul language. When Zeem and his team tried to advertise the opening of the NC-17-rated Flesh Gordon sequel in the LA Times, their ad was rejected, even though the paper did run a review of the movie. Zeem went on to write that in his experience, quote, an independently produced film that receives an NC-17 rating stands a strong chance of being denied the right to advertise. And when you have millions of dollars invested in the making of that film, that is something to squawk about. Zeem also questioned whether, quote, limiting Americans to viewing inoffensive movies is going to help them deal with the turmoil and complexities of modern life. Zeem may have been biased by his personal experience, but his was not a niche argument. In the name of performing a public service, wrote film critic Peter Travers in August 1992, the rating system is holding movies hostage to a repressive double standard. This was published in Us magazine, where Travers nodded to an aspect of the rating system that has always gone underreported. It's pay-to-play, and smaller film producers can't afford to go through multiple appeals, which they usually have to do because the MPAA refuses to tell them how to cut their movies to get an R. This is why, to use examples given by Travers, Basic Instinct, a film we will talk about in much more depth later this season, I assure you, blasts through boundaries in terms of its depiction of nudity, violence, and sexual violence, and gets an R rating, while a film with just as much narrative grounding for its sex and violence, Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant, 
gets stuck with an NC-17 that it can't afford to appeal. A few months later, the LA Times talked to a number of filmmakers who felt shafted by the MPAA's inconsistent, usually opaque, and clearly commercially biased decision-making. But one distributor suggested it was time to try a different tactic. An Australian film adaptation of the novel Wide Sargasso Sea was given an NC-17 for tastefully shot marital sex that included one long shot of a penis. Ira Deutschman of the film's distributor Fineline Features told the Times that he would not appeal the rating. All it says is that it is not suitable for children, Deutschman said, adding, if we stop treating the NC-17 as a pariah, it will stop being seen as a pariah. Maybe that would have happened if anyone else had followed suit. There would be NC-17 rated films released throughout the 90s, which of course we will talk about as the season goes on. But the stigma remained even as sex and pornography became, more than ever, part of the national discourse. Though porno movies were no longer shown widely in movie theaters, Hollywood in the 90s would break what had been a major taboo, casting performers from the adult industry in non-adult movies. When he was making his 1990 film Cry Baby for Universal, John Waters faced no pushback on casting Tracy Lords, then 21, who had recently been at the center of a major scandal when it was revealed that during the height of her porn career, when she had been amongst the most popular and highest paid actresses in adult movies, she had also been underage. Tracy Lords was the first crossover porn star of the 90s, but she was far from the last. The door between the two industries that seemed impenetrable when De Palma wanted to cast Annette Haven in Body Double started to open, in part thanks to new attitudes about sex being put forward by a new wave of telegenic, pro-porn feminists. When I started researching erotic 80s, I bought all 12 issues of Playboy from 1980 because I thought it would be useful to give me a sense of average straight male sexual thinking at the beginning of the decade. It was useful for that. But what was surprising to me about those issues is that they revealed the extent to which the magazine at that time was absolutely obsessed with combating the threat it perceived from feminism. This time, going into erotic 90s, I decided that I needed to take a more dialectical approach from the beginning. I bought and read several issues of two magazines dealing with sexual politics from 1989 and 1990 to get a snapshot of different aspects of thinking around those issues as the decade began. I bought a bunch of Playboys, but I also collected several copies of Ms. The Bible of Centrist Feminism, conceived as a dispatch from the front lines of the women's movement. In 1980, Playboy was on the defensive, publishing three major articles attacking mainstream feminism as alarmist and anti-sex. By the end of the decade, the magazine's stance on that strain of feminism had become harder 
and more bitter as the landscape of mainstream feminism had become more diverse. In April 1989, Playboy published the first installment in a four-part reported series on sex at the dawn of the 90s. It began with a verite look at the workday of a phone sex actress and moved on to a mini-profile of Susie Bright, a writer and activist credited by Playboy as, quote, the wild theorist of femme porn, hardcore erotica created by women that breaks most of the boundaries of male pornography. Bright gave lectures at colleges like Stanford, in which she warmed up the student audience by showing a clip from Body Heat and ended on a clip of a female adult performer giving her male partner a rim job. After my show, these kids can't stop talking, Bright told Playboy. They're not hung up on the old criticisms. Is this degrading to women? Is a cliche by now. The debatable question these days is, was it sexy or was it stupid? Women and men both. In that piece, Bright sets herself up as an antagonist to what she calls fundamentalist feminists, including Playboy's old nemesis, Andrea Dworkin. Bright suggested that Dworkin's writings equating the very nature of heterosexual intercourse with rape had backfired. Andrea Dworkin is the Marquis de Sade of our times, though she reaches different conclusions and has no sense of satire, Bright said. Bright wasn't the first pro-sex feminist. In fact, a wave of pro-sex feminism coincided with a wave of anti-porn feminism that we've discussed from the 70s and 80s, the leading light of which was Ellen Willis, a New York rock critic and a fierce voice against sexual oppression from any source. Willis is credited with coining the term pro-sex feminism. If feminists define pornography per se as the enemy, the result will be to make a lot of women ashamed of their sexual feelings and afraid to be honest about them, Willis wrote in 1979, adding, and the last thing women need is more shame and hypocrisy, this time served up as feminism. Willis mostly challenged the feminist establishment in print and in academic forums. Bright and other sex-positive feminists of the 90s had a much broader media platform. In 1989, Playboy was still wary of any kind of feminism. Even as they were celebrating Bright and other liberated women working in and near the sex industry, the magazine juxtaposed them with a number of men in sexual crisis. The section on Bright is followed by a visit to a men's group in Marin County, who are debating the question, is sex necessary? According to Playboy, quote, the answer seems to be, well, not really. It's too much of a hassle. From there, the reporters move on to a men's movement ceremony in the woods, where a broken man describes his inability to screw since his partner left him for another woman. And then to a sex addict's anonymous meeting where the vast majority of those quoted confessing their quote-unquote deep shame over their sexual transgressions are men. Sexual desire became pathology in the 80s, Playboy tells us. 
The stringing together of stories about women aggressively embracing sexuality and even making money off of it, followed by stories about emasculated men who can only find peace through abstinence and confession, doesn't seem accidental. In fact, this structuring shows male anxiety or dysfunction literally following female sexual liberation. Finally, the authors find something they can celebrate, a pansexual safe orgy, where intercourse and the exchange of bodily fluids are banned, but all else is permitted. There were those who attended the party that night who believed that they had glimpsed the future of the sexual revolution. The authors tell us, the party had somehow combined the wildness of the 60s and 70s with the prudence of the 80s. But Playboy allowed its readers to hold on to the dream of the past by focusing on party attendee Missy Manners, a porn star who had once worked for Republican Senator Orrin Hatch and who once categorized her adult film work as, quote, a political statement to people in Washington that you cannot take away our individual freedom. For Missy, the safe sex party was a tease. Playboy reported hearing her giddy wail, but I'm into penetration. Don't worry, men. Your biological purpose hasn't dissipated completely. Just a month later, Ms. Magazine put out their own special sex issue with contributions from a variety of writers. The biggest star was Erica Zhang. In our Richard Gere episode in Erotic 80s, I talked about how the great Molly Haskell had written an essay describing Gere as the ideal fantasy object for a zipless fuck, the term for sex without strings coined by Zhang in her groundbreaking 70s novel, Fear of Flying. In the Ms. sex issue, Zhang jokes that her tombstone will read, here lies one who first said zipless fuck. But now she insisted, this was not a practice she ever advocated. Quote, I merely chronicled it. And now, 16 years later, I am asked to defend it. I refuse. Our society has had a decade and a half of experimentation with random sexual freedom. We have discovered that it is neither so very sexy nor so very free. Women in her generation, she writes, are fully disillusioned after being forced to pay the price of sexual freedom. Alone in our single parent families, still searching for the one great love, we begin to smell a rat. There is finally no substitute for love, for spiritual sharing, for commitment, for cherishing each other. A careful rereading of the novel shows that free love was never so very free at all. Zhang would soon publish another novel called Any Woman's Blues, which further narrativized her critique of sexual liberation. Much of the Ms. sex issue dealt with what was alternately called the new morality or the new conservatism. Though much of the media had attributed this conservatism to the fear of AIDS, Lillian B. Rubin saw this as a moment of empowerment for women 
Among the pioneers of the sexual revolution, it became important to show that a woman could fuck like a man. The only model of sexual freedom around at the time, Rubin wrote. Women were free to try out the one-night stands, the conquests, the high-sensation, low-emotion sex that until then had been the prerogatives of men alone. Sexual freedom for women, Rubin added, was not to be found emulating men. While the sexual revolution of the 60s freed women to say yes, it also all too often disabled them from saying no. For some time, therefore, sexual freedom lived side by side with sexual exploitation. And although this has not been banished from the heterosexual scene, many women are taking back their options, feeling freer to make choices, to say no as well as yes. Rubin's suggestion that women of the 90s might feel freer than their forebears goes against research that she reports in the same story. Rubin surveyed about 600 students from around the country, and the overwhelming response from the boys was that while they appreciated a partner who knew what she was doing in bed, they didn't want to date girls who quote-unquote slept around. Subsequently, women reported feeling that they needed to lie about and downplay their sexual activity when meeting men. Rather than feel empowered to make their own choices, they felt the need to acquire sexual experience, but feign virginity. These kinds of double standards were enough to drive young people crazy. 23-year-old Katie Monocle wrote in the same issue that the new morality looked to her a lot like the old pre-AIDS morality. Now, she wrote, these narrow-minded values I've spent almost half my life trying to escape are the cornerstone of the biggest social movement since the 60s. Young people are more conservative now than a generation ago, we're told. Casual sex is out. Heterosexuality and monogamy are in lauded as the only ways to have safe sex and beautiful relationships. I feel threatened by the new morality, Monagle added. It's not just sex that's under attack. It's my ability to be me, whoever I am. As Willis had predicted, given the choice of a feminism that made women feel bad about themselves, many embraced an alternative. A few months into 1990, Playboy declared, sex is back. The comeback owed to the fact, as wrote Michael Kelly, that an ever-growing number of people no longer believe they are going to get AIDS from doing it. He proceeds to quote a number of mostly straight people who have had little to no contact with anyone who has ever contracted HIV and have decided, probably prematurely, to stop worrying about it. His examples include 41-year-old bisexual Teresa, whose fear of AIDS led her to get married and try monogamy. That lasted a year. And then Teresa, deciding to fear no more, quote, defected from the corporate world and became a $200 an hour new age call girl. Kelly also interviews Brad, a male friend of his who refuses to use condoms because, quote, usually I go out with young girls who have had, like, only one boyfriend. A year earlier, in reporting on that safe sex orgy, 
Playboy had wistfully imagined a future that could reframe the sexually adventurous spirit of the 60s and 70s in an end-of-the-century context. In 1990, when sex came back, it took the form of musty old fantasies about high-class, fully experienced call girls and young virtual virgins. These were Playboy's greatest hits. One hit that the magazine probably thought they could take out of their repertoire when this issue was published in the spring of 1990 was their reflexive attacks on feminism. It looked like if it had been a war, Playboy had won. At the end of 1989, six months after their sex issue, Ms. Magazine shut down. The consensus was that the magazine, which had always struggled to find advertisers, had in the late 80s shown its desperation to stay relevant in its editorial. Feminism itself had, in some senses, gone mainstream. In other ways, it had stalled. The only true reason to rue the demise of the magazine was that it still carried the feminist standard. Wrote Ellen Goodman in the Washington Post, who added, There was a vague uneasiness that the death of Ms. would be used as another indication of the decline of the movement. The magazine was relaunched in the summer of 1990 as a subscriber-supported publication, meaning there were no ads. New editor Robin Morgan promised that, with no advertisers to answer to, quote, Ms. will go back to the cutting edge. Inside the first ad-free issue, this resurrection was positioned both as the magazine's only option for survival and also a move that would allow the Ms. editorial to break free from the corporate mainstream. But what seems clear to me from the many issues of Ms. that I own from the 90s is that in stepping away from commerce, the magazine was also stepping out of popular culture. Ms.'s interaction with movies, TV, and pop music had always felt awkward at best, but now it seemed like they stopped trying. The only film reviewed in the first ad-free issue is the French-language Camille Claudel, for which Isabella Jani had been nominated for an Oscar a few months earlier. But there was little attempt to engage with more mainstream content. By the time we get to the late 90s version of quote-unquote girl power, this would look like maybe it had been a mistake. In the 70s and early 80s, as we saw in our last season, the segment of the culture represented by Playboy was successfully able to brand the segment of the culture represented by Ms., as anti-sex, anti-men, and, all in all, no fun. In 1990, the ad-free relaunch of Ms. didn't do anything to argue the opposite. But at the same time, for better or for worse, there were voices rising up that told both women and men they could align themselves with some of the basic tenets of female empowerment while still having a fun, sexy time. In 1990, the biggest multimedia star in the world was Madonna, 
who encouraged women to not accept the bare minimum from the men in their lives as part of her brand. In the David Fincher video for her 1989 hit, Express Yourself, she even mocks masculinity by grabbing her crotch and flexing her biceps while wearing an oversized man's suit. Madonna's sexual confidence was celebrated by another new voice of feminism, Camille Paglia. Paglia championed Madonna because she was perceived as a slut by others. The pop star, Paglia would say, was recovering the great archetype of the whore of Babylon. Paglia skyrocketed to fame in 1990 after the publication of Sexual Personae, her 700-page treatise tracking what she refers to as pagan sexuality in literature and art from ancient Egypt through the end of the 19th century, although she also draws in more recent icons, including Elvis and Lauren Bacall. Her goal, as she put it in a Playboy interview, was, quote, to demonstrate that pornography is everywhere in major art, even though art history as written is completely sex-free, repressive, and puritanical. Paglia wasn't Hannah Gadsby. She wasn't slamming art for being perverted or triggering. She was celebrating it for being perverted. Talking about Paglia can get very tricky very quickly because sometimes she's right and sometimes she's so, so offensive, sometimes in consecutive sentences. Some of her art criticism is really good. And I think her celebration of the carnal in art and popular culture is extremely necessary and is worth revisiting today in a moment in which the depiction of sex, whether by 17th century painters or 21st century filmmakers, is often reflexively seen as suspect. But she is also a biological determinist, which has led her to say a lot of confusing and wrongheaded stuff about trans issues, even while claiming that she herself identifies as trans. And because she's so invested in the idea that women are strong cerebral beings and men are empty vessels led by their urges, she's often really, really bad about talking about power imbalances and sexual violence. In one interview from the early 90s, she moves seamlessly from a thoughtful philosophical take on male ambition and its connection to, quote, an attempt to create an artificial world away from man's origin in the woman's body, to saying that women who dress a certain way deserve to get raped. Quote, I see women jogging on the street with their breasts bouncing up and down, and I think they're out of their minds. They really do not see that they're just a walking provocation to attack. One of the main problems for feminists is their incomprehension that dress conveys provocative signals. Paglia's book was incendiary and much debated. And Paglia, who had toiled in academia for decades and had spent almost 10 years trying to get the book published, became an instant media star. Without exactly styling herself for the male gaze, with her sleek, silvery haircut and chiseled cheekbones, Camille looked great on TV. A marked difference from the Andrea Dworkin school of feminists, 
whose disregard for conforming to conventional standards of telegenic presentation enhanced their threat to the system that enforced those standards. And then there was the fact that Paglia always gave incendiary sound bites that usually confirmed a certain viewer's hopes that things like sexual harassment and date rape were the overblown non-issues of those self-victimizing other feminists, the ones who weren't so pleasant to look at. Paglia used her media platform to do two things primarily. First, she championed pagan sexuality where she saw it flourishing in the 90s, which was mostly in pop music and in porn. If Clarence Thomas brought hardcore pornography back into the popular cultural conversation in a way that it hadn't been since the Deep Throat days, Paglia's celebration of it further helped to destigmatize porn, especially in academia. Her second mission was against the feminist establishment. What I want to do is smash the entire superstructure of feminist ideology, she said in 1991. I support the feminist social agenda, full political, legal, and social equality for women. But, quote, the feminist way of looking at things, blaming male oppression and patriarchy, is absurd. Camille Paglia was not on the fringe in saying this in 1991. She was one of a number of intellectuals or media figures who were articulating the idea that feminism had gone too hard against men and was, in fact, doing a disservice to women by trying to convince them they were victims. These voices found an audience because Ellen Willis's prediction had come to pass. Some women had grown tired of being made to feel shame for desires that didn't match the feminist model. Some of this came from the ground up, from a younger generation that couldn't identify with the feminist ideology of their mothers or older sisters. In a December 1989 article on the state of feminism in Time magazine, a college senior was quoted as saying she was feminine, not a feminist. She added, I picture a feminist as someone who is masculine and who doesn't shave her legs and is doing everything she can to deny that she's feminine. To some young women in the early 90s, the pioneers of the women's movement seemed like boring old scolds. And if you were a female who quote-unquote liked men and wanted to be thought of as conventionally attractive to them, it didn't seem like there was a home for you in conventional feminism. But some of this stuff felt a lot like the backlash stuff of the 80s. We talked last season about how the media could use sex to make women forget about fighting for equality in the workplace, in the legal sphere, with their husbands at home. And one example of that was the attitudes espoused by the male publisher of the supposedly feminist magazine Playgirl. By the time we get to the 90s, there are a number of forces colliding together so that women in the public space are essentially doing the same thing that the Playgirl publisher did in the 80s. 
publications like Playboy, understood that they couldn't just have men arguing against feminists anymore. They could only continue to advance their agenda if they got women to do it too. Playboy began running essays by Stephanie Gutman, who became their go-to correspondent for just asking questions. Questions such as, date rape, does anyone really know what it is? In that piece published in October 1990, the gist of Gutman's argument is that most women who cry date rape after sex are just feeling regret for not having been chased or for not adequately saying no. Perhaps young women are looking for an out that's acceptable in today's environment, where sexual openness and enthusiasm are de rigueur, she wrote. Given feminism's reigning orthodoxies, it's more acceptable to say that men are monsters than to say, I don't feel like it right now. Bad feelings after sex become someone else's fault. A sexual encounter is transformed into a one-way event in which the woman has no stake, no interest, and no active role. Assuming the status of victim is in many ways an easy answer, but not one befitting a supposedly liberated woman. In extreme reaction against anti-sex feminism, we got a new version of female empowerment that not only embraced sex, but embraced men and defended them and suggested that enough of the work of previous waves of feminism was complete that women didn't need protection or special treatment of any kind and should instead embrace both free will and personal responsibility. It's easier to see how problematic this is now, how it serves men's needs more than women's. But in the early 90s, it felt like an alternative to a mainstream that was increasingly using fear to reinforce traditional sexual values that threatened to put female liberation in rewind. 1991, the year that Paglia's sexual personae came out in paperback, was also the year of the Clarence Thomas confirmation the acquittal of accused rapist William Kennedy Smith, and of Magic Johnson's AIDS diagnosis. The latter event shocked a straight America that, as Playboy had chronicled, believed it couldn't happen to them. Newsweek ran an issue dedicated to safe sex in December 1991, which featured a condom on the cover, itself shocking for 1991, and a long-reported story about why straight people had resisted using them. The issue also included a number of letters responding to coverage of Magic's announcement. One was signed by Chuck Childress of Eureka, California, who wrote, AIDS is a terrible disease. We need to do all we can to combat it. But I'm getting tired of hearing the buzzwords safe sex. Maybe it's time for some discussion about abstinence. Maybe it's time for a return to the traditional values of chastity and faithfulness. Maybe marrying a virgin and enjoying a monogamous heterosexual relationship is an idea whose time has come again. 
maybe someone is trying to tell us something. That implied someone, of course, is God. And the something they are trying to tell us, according to Chuck Childress, is that all sexual relationships other than straight married ones deserve to be punished by death. In their safe sex cover story, Newsweek quoted Paglia, saying that the, quote, dark, turbulent drama of sexual desire supersedes sex education. This is amongst the most reasonable generalizations Camille Paglia ever made. She's basically saying that in the heat of the moment, responsibility can go out the window. But Newsweek used it as an opening to conservative moralizing. Quote, Historically, only the strong sanctions of religion and family have succeeded in reigning in this primal force. The logic of Paglia's position leads to a call not for more information, but for moral absolutes. This is sort of laughable because, if anything, Paglia was too resistant to moral absolutes. She infamously defended men grooming young boys as a callback to the ancient Greeks. But she was also aware that provocation was profitable. So she was probably just happy to sell more books. If anything was clear, it was that in the 90s, there was money to be made as a mercenary. As a teenager during this decade, I didn't have a mom or any adult women that I was close to, and I had to look to famous people to help me make sense of the role of sexuality in the culture. Revisiting these ideas and news events and films from the early 90s has been very emotional for me. It takes me back to an extremely confusing time when I really needed guidance and I didn't get it. And when I look back at how the culture dealt with sex in the 90s, I see that I was hardly the only one who was easily distracted by provocateurs. Susan Faludi published Backlash in 1991, but it seems clear now that the real pop cultural backlash was still to come. Today, we talked about how Hollywood's attempts at a supposedly more permissive rating system backfired. And yet, over and over again throughout the decade, Hollywood would produce movies that, whether they meant to or not, dealt with or at least reflected this highly hypocritical time for sexuality. Next week, we are going to dive right in by talking about the truly historic pairing of the quintessential sexual symbol of the early 80s, with a newcomer who would be forced uneasily into serving as an icon of femininity for the 90s. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. 
Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.